Well, good day and welcome to the online ministry for St. Augustine's Anglican Church in Inverell. My name's Matt and it's wonderful that you're watching with us today. Uh, this ministry has been prepared for Sunday, the 2nd of July, 2023. Now, before we go to a time of praise, hear these words of scripture from Psalm 27. Uh, it forms a prayer. David writes, Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be gracious to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I seek. Sing of your name. 
As we come to the ministry of God's word, let me pray our collect prayer for the day. Almighty God, you are our hope and strength, and we pray that your grace might always uphold and encourage us and make us continually live according to your will as we depend on your word. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, our Bible readings today begin in Psalm 96, verses 1 through to 9. And then our New Testament reading, uh, we're looking at Acts 16, verse 6 through to 18, verse 22. Uh, But you might like just to read 17, 14 to 34, and then 18, 1 to 11. So you can read two smaller sections, or you can read the whole thing. Uh, That would be wonderful. Uh, Have a read of those, pause the video, and then in a moment, let's come to think about this a bit more together. Well, let me pray as we jump into God's word. Father of all goodness, we just ask that at this moment you would guide us, that you would help us see Jesus and what he is doing. Father, help us to respond with lives of praise and faithfulness. Amen. Well, two weeks ago, many Australians were cheering on one of our growing sporting champions. You might know who it is. It's Tim Zhu. Uh, Having completely dominated and outboxed his opponent in 72 seconds, the ringside commentators said, he's the risk taker and he's ready for the world. Now, after his his boxing match, Tim Zeus himself said, the USA, that's the land I want to conquer next. That's where I'm headed. Now, he's, uh, he's clearly outboxed all of his opponents here in Australia on home turf. But the question is, how will this guy go in a completely new setting? Will he be out of his depth as he goes to take on America's best? That's the question. Now, for you, as you're watching, maybe you don't care at all about boxing. Maybe you've never heard about Tim Zhu. That's okay. But I wonder, as you think about the gospel, as you think about the good news of Jesus... Do you think that it is ever out of its depth? Is it outmatched as we seek to share the gospel with rough and hardened tradies? Can it have any real impact in our our first class universities here in Australia? uh, Places that are full of intellectual thinkers. What about in the seedier parts of town? Or what about as it comes up against members of the LGBTI communities? Do you think there are places or people that we shouldn't even bother trying to reach with the gospel? Now, two weeks ago, we heard all about Paul's first missionary journey here in Acts as he took the gospel to the kind of rural areas of uh, what was the first century Asia. And we saw that over there, it had success as people gave their lives to Jesus, as churches were planted and Christian communities were formed. But today, it comes up against a new opponent. Paul is going to take the gospel to a a bit of Europe. Now, he's going on a little tour and he's visiting big commercial centres. He's visiting an intellectual capital. And he's also seeing the capital of immorality, the capital of wickedness, you might say. And so the good news of Jesus, how's it going to go? 
Like Tim Zhu, the question is, will it be unstoppable like it's been so far? Or is it out of its depth? Will it have no real impact? Now, this is the the second missionary journey of Paul. He goes on kind of a five-city tour. And we know before he even starts that there is going to be a fair bit of opposition, don't we, along the way. But what I want you to notice is how people's lives are still being transformed by and transformed for Jesus, wherever the gospel goes out to. And for us, since this is a missionary journey, or we might say an outreach journey, I'm going to pause and draw out some of the missional or rather outreach implications for us along the way. Right, let's go then. Uh, Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, We only read uh, two of the, the later parts of it, or you might have read the whole thing. That's great if you have. But it begins back in chapter 16, verse 6. And we're told there that Paul and his companions are traveling through some of the places that they already visited on the first journey. But in verses 6 and 7, as they try to head a little bit higher up on the map, what happens? The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, prevents them from doing so. Now, the author, Dr. Luke, he doesn't tell us what that actually means, what it looks like. Was it a vision? Was it a dream? Was it just these circumstances that they meant they couldn't go there? We don't know. But either way, these guys, they have no doubt that this is the risen Lord Jesus directing them. And so, verse 8, they end up in Troas. And then in verse 9 and 10, it confirms for us that it is, in fact, God leading them because Paul has a dream, he has a vision, and he sees this guy from Macedonia who says, hey, come over this way. Come to Macedonia. Come to Europe. Now, you might also notice that in verse 11, uh, the author, Luke, he's now among Paul's companions because he says, verse 11, from Troas, we put out to sea. And perhaps for us, that's probably why there are more details in this second missionary journey. But that's a small detail. But the thing you can't miss is that God is leading these people to take the gospel to Europe. Now, Paul was trying to head up north into more of modern day Turkey. But Jesus went, no, no, I've got other plans for you. You're going to Europe, buddy. And so first up on the way, chapter 16, verse 12 is... Philippi. It's a big commercial city and uh, as we read about other cities that Paul visits, he always has the kind of same pattern. What he does is he goes and visits the Jewish synagogues first, uh, their places of worship. He follows this pattern. Uh, It's the same one that he had in his first missionary journey. He starts with the Jews, those who knew their Old Testaments well and knew about God's promised Messiah. And you might say that he has a tactic of starting with the low-hanging fruit. People for whom there's already a connection with. People who are perhaps looking for answers to life's big questions or people who are showing some kind of openness to the gospel. And so for us, as we think about outreach, we might stop at this point and consider, for us, who are the low-hanging fruit, so to speak? That doesn't mean that we withhold uh, sharing our faith with some people that we think are less willing to accept it. But it's good to stop and consider for ourselves, who are the obvious gospel opportunities that God has placed before us? Now, it might be those people that you find yourself rubbing shoulders with every day of the week. Or it may be someone who you know that's going through a bit of a tough patch, that's going through a, a bit of a crisis in life. 
someone that you have the opportunity to, to sit with, to listen to, to love, and to help point towards Jesus as the answer to all of life's problems, the one in who we find comfort. And so, what does Paul do? He starts here with the low-hanging fruit by looking for where the Jews are. Now in Philippi, there's no synagogue. And so what does he do? He goes down to the river where he expects to find a bunch of Jews hanging out. Now the God fears as well. And when he's there, uh, he meets and speaks to this lady called Lydia. Uh, Luke tells us what she was like and what she did. But more importantly, we're told how God immediately got to work in her life. In the end of verse 14, we're told the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Then verse 15, her whole family comes to faith and are baptized as well. And she then welcomes Paul and his companions into her house to stay with her. It's an amazing transformation. Knowing what Jesus has done for her in love. It produces an immediate spirit of hospitality for her new Jesus-shaped family. And as you read that, could you think Paul could ever ask, even ask for a better start to his missionary journey? Who wouldn't want to do mission work in Philippi hearing this? I mean, sign me up, put my name down. Well, no, things aren't always so smooth, smooth, are they? Because next they meet another woman who they actually send an evil spirit out of in the name of Jesus. And I mean, that might sound good. But not if you're this slave girl's owners who are making a profit off the, uh, the future telling ability that the, the evil spirit gives this girl. And so in turn, it's then bad news for Paul and Silas because they are dragged by the owners uh, before the authorities. They're accused with lies. They're beaten with rods. They're flogged and they're thrown into prison. And you might be thinking, boy, that escalated quickly. I mean, I thought Jesus was guiding them so that people would respond to the gospel. That's what's happening, right? But now they're in jail. Well, if we keep reading in this section, we see that Jesus is no less in control in this time. And his gospel is still winning people to God. Because in the middle of the night, verse 26, God sends an earthquake, one that's so violent it shakes the jail and all the cells, they kind of bust open. Verse 27, the jailer realizes what's going on, thinks everyone must have run away. I'm in trouble. He goes to off himself. But verse 28, Paul calls out to stop. And this whole event seems to shake him to the core. And the jailer says to Paul and Silas in verse 30, what must I do to be saved? And Paul simply says, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. All right, it's faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the only thing that can save not only the jailer, but any of us. It's the only thing that puts us into a right relationship with God. It means that we have a future, an eternal future that's secure. And so then, like Lydia before him, the jailer hears this good news. He accepts it along with all his household and they're transformed by Jesus. This hardened soldier who was a minute ago beating and flogging Jesus' messengers is all of a sudden bathing their wounds. Verse 33 and verse 34, bringing them into his house and offering a meal before them joyfully. The work that Jesus is doing in Europe here in this missionary journey 
is not being held back by prison cells or chains. No, Jesus was using these things to reach this man and his entire family. And there's no doubt that there's many more here that Luke hasn't mentioned as well. Now, can you see how, despite intense opposition, Jesus was claiming people in this city for himself? Well, that's a flyover and it's just the first city. You ready for more? All right. Next, we'll we'll bundle up the next two. Uh, Chapter 17, verses 1 to 15. It's time for Thessalonica and Berea. So 17 verse 1, they arrive in Thessalonica. It's another big city uh, along a major trade route. And typically Paul, what does he do? Goes to the synagogue, right? Jews first. In verse 2, he opens the Bible with them and tells them that it all points to Jesus. And when these people are pointed to God, what happens? You guessed it. A large number of people give their lives to Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles, men and and women. And so, like in Philippi, we might be tempted to say, how good is ministry in Thessalonica? I want to go there too. Happy days, right? No, you know what's going to happen, don't you? Not quite. Verse 5. But other Jews were jealous. And so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and they started to dance. No, that's not what happens, is it? No, they formed a mob That's not West Side Story. They start a riot. That's what they did. They went looking for Paul and Silas. And again, in response to the good news of the gospel of Jesus, rather, we see transformation on the one hand, but it's not without opposition on the other. And so in verse 10, with this turmoil going on, uh, these new believers, they're quick to, to... help Paul and Silas out and send them on their way to the next city, Berea. And what happens here? Well, it's quite similar to Thessalonica just beforehand. But there's a few differences. Right, so they go again, Jewish synagogues, like always. And in the last city, we heard about some jealous Jews. But in verse 11, we're told, now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. What does it mean in practice that they're more noble? Well, this time as Paul shares Jesus with them, they open up their Bibles for themselves. And as a result, verse 12, many believed. And we should know by now that before we're tempted to uh, to say, how good is it in Berea? I want to go there. Well, things take a turn. Verse 13, those jealous Jews from Thessalonica They've found out where Paul and Silas and the rest are. They've hunted them down and they've turned up ready to cause trouble. But before we move on to the next city where they go, I want to stop and and have you notice again the simple pattern that led to people giving their lives to Jesus. Both Jews, Gentiles, men and women. People were coming to faith as they were reading God's word. Now, I said it three weeks ago when we looked at uh, our core biblical value, number five, outreach for us as a church. And I'll say it again. A really simple question that we can ask people we know that Jesus might use to transform their lives is this. Would you like to read the Bible with me? This is how God works to bring people to faith in Jesus. 
And it's what Paul and Silas and the others are doing with people in these cities. They're reading the Bible with them and explaining how in Jesus we see God's uncompromising love and his offer of grace to broken lives like ours. Who do you long for that they would know Jesus? Who could you offer to open the Bible with? Maybe offering to help them understand a little bit about what you believe. Well, that's what Paul does, but let's keep moving in the story. We're now at chapter 17, verse 14. Uh, This is where our our first kind of Bible reading picks up today. Uh, Those who have given their lives to Jesus, they're quick to urge Paul on, that they care about his well-being. And so they send him off down to Athens. And now you might want to pause and say, hang on, hang on, hang on. I thought that nothing could stop the gospel. Why are they so quick to move them on? And that's right. It's a good question. But I think we need to see all this as part of the Lord's guiding. What we find is that what looks to us like trouble for the gospel actually means that it's spreading quickly. Jesus' gospel is not out of its league. It's taking victories in these five cities so far. But next up is the city of Athens, uh, the birthplace and the home of of um, modern Western philosophy. It's the, uh, it's the intellectual capital of the world. And so we ask, how is the gospel going to go against all these great thinkers? Well, let's see. And when he gets there, Paul is distressed to see that it's, the city is full of pagan idols. That people are lost. People are worshipping man-made things like stone and wood and, and, uh, and metal instead of the one true living God. And so in verses 17 and 18, he preaches about the risen Lord Jesus, which for them, it's a new idea. And so they bring him to the Areopagus, which is kind of like the the big philosophical think tank in Athens. In verse 19, they give him the mic. And I want you to notice Paul's strategy here, because I think it might be helpful for us as well to have in mind when it comes to our own personal outreach. His strategy is, Agreement, then friction. Agreement, then friction. He starts with agreement. That is, he gets them engaged by something that they agree with. Verse 22 and 23, you can read along. He says to them, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Right, he gets them going, yes, yes, we are very religious, aren't we? But then after finding something they can agree on, he leans into a point of friction where the gospel of Jesus rubs against and shows a deficiency and real need that they have. So he has them going, yes, yes, an altar to an unknown God, yes. Verse 23, he then says, so you are ignorant of the very things that you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. One minute they're going, yeah, yeah. The next minute he's got them going, huh? Hang on a minute. He's pointing out a fault in, in their logic, in their thinking. And now he's got them listening. And so what Paul goes on to show them is that they actually have minimized God in their own thinking and maximized themselves. 
And so he leans in on this as a point of friction. And in verse 24 to 29, he corrects some of those points of ignorance for them they have about God. And he preaches true wisdom and he lands at verse 31 saying, God has made us. We are accountable to him for our lives. He has set a day when he'll judge all people when we'll appear before Jesus, who's the judge. And he's proven this by his resurrection. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus, if it's true, it changes everything. And Paul tells them how how they can harmonize their lives with this greater reality he's pointing out. In verse 30, he says, you need to repent. Right? Like the call to the Philippian jailer, it's a call to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died to make things right, the one who died to bring you to God. Give up your life of self. Give up trusting in yourself. And instead, cast your life on and trust in him and experience God's love and forgiveness. Now, as you're watching here, uh, I don't know necessarily where you're at, Perhaps for you, you need to hear this call. If you haven't yet, give your life to Jesus and find new life with the God who made you, who knows you, and who loves you. That's his offer to you in Jesus. Well, this is the gospel message. It's something that we all need to personally respond to. And then in verses 32 to 34, we're told how the people of Athens responded. Some scoffed. Some were interested and wanted to hear more, but they weren't quite convinced yet. And some accepted it and gave their lives to Jesus. Right, the good news of Jesus is God's power to save people who are perishing, people who are not in relationship with him. And some people, some people will receive it as the most wonderful news that they've ever possibly heard. And others, others will receive it and you probably like a bad smell. And the book of Acts shows us that actually any one of those responses is normal. And Jesus is still in control. He's still controlling, still guiding things to their true and proper end, no matter how people respond. Well, with those responses, we might say that the gospel seems to be punching above its weight. Even these big thinkers are being one for Jesus. So far, Jesus and his gospel have won converts in four big European cities. But now, now it comes to the toughest of them all. Corinth. Corinth had two harbours. It was renowned as a place of not only prosperity, but also immense immorality. Right? If you ever watched Pirates of the Caribbean, I want you to think about the port of Tortuga. Right? That's the kind of place. That's what it's like. If Athens was the capital of intellect, then Corinth was the capital of wickedness. And as usual here, verse 4 and 5, Paul goes and the others, they go to the Jews first. But what has previously been low-hanging fruit and good soil actually turns out to be here quite hard, quite unproductive. And so verse 6, the Jews oppose them and they, they get aggressive, they get abusive. And so Paul gets out. He goes next door, across the, across the wall. But I think what happens then may have surprised Paul. Because it wasn't only this Gentile man who lives next door that, that came to faith. But the leader in the synagogue followed him next door 
And he and his whole household gave their lives to Jesus as well. And can you see the irony in this wonderful turn of events? And so if anyone knows, Paul knows that sharing the good news of Jesus can be a bit of a mixed bag. It's met sometimes with genuine faith, but also with severe opposition. And because gospel ministry can be such a mixed bag, we so often need encouragement to persevere, don't we? That's true for Paul as well. And so verse 9, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. And he continues on. Jesus, he's telling him, it's going to get tough. It is tough. But keep on going. Because A, you're not alone in your work. And B, there are so many more people in this city who are going to hear and respond to my gospel. Now, I don't know about you. But I can't think of anything more encouraging to hear from the lips of Jesus than that. The the promise that the gospel punches above any expectation we set on it. And that God partners with us, with ordinary believers, to see the lost saved in the name of Jesus. Well, after remaining in Corinth for uh, a year and a half, in verse 12 on, uh, this is incident where Paul finds himself dragged again before uh, the governing rulers of the city. And he, just, he discovers that in contrast to the Lord, Christians shouldn't be tempted to look, to look for comfort in our governments. Uh, in his case, the government is quite indifferent to both the outrage against Christians, but also the unjust public flogging of them. Right? The guy here in the story, the official, he doesn't care about any of it. And for us, it might feel sometimes like, like that's our government. Sometimes it feels like they're against us or for us. But either way, it doesn't matter. The success of the gospel is not dependent on laws that our government passed down. The gospel doesn't need our government to uphold the, even the freedom of Christian speech. Would it make things easier for us, more comfortable? Yeah, probably. But the gospel's success doesn't depend on that. Whatever they decide, why would we think that it could stop what Jesus is doing in the lives of people all around us? There's no obstacle in seeing people come to faith here in our communities. Just like it was no obstacle for people coming to faith in Europe, like in Acts we see here. Now, after Corinth... Uh, Paul and the others, they sail back home to to the home bases of Jerusalem and Antioch. But in these European cities, where there's opposition, I want you to see how God used the hostility to open up areas of opportunity and growth rather than hinder it. These missionaries, they bounced around and sometimes were thrown around uh, from city to city. But all the while, Jesus used the bad as well as the glad responses to see lost people saved, to see people transformed, to see these Jesus-shaped communities formed. Now, God doesn't always promise to protect his messengers like he does for Paul in Corinth. Sometimes God's messengers, what happens to them is more like, uh, like Philip, excuse me, like Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He gets buried. 
But God's gospel is never buried. Now, we don't know, for Tim Zhu, our Australian boxer, we don't know how he's going to go when he leaves the safety of Australia to take on America's best. But we know that the gospel is powerful in every city. Now, we might sometimes look around and be tempted to think that the gospel's not up to the task of converting modern, sophisticated, work people in our, in our world. Maybe for us, we're even tempted sometimes to think that you know, we could do better if we tweak the gospel to make it more palatable. And in fact, quite a few churches have sadly done just that. But the gospel's reception in Europe here, in this part of Acts, it reminds us that we need to resist this temptation, that we need to keep going on in faith with courage, because the gospel is never out of its depth. Jesus is never out of his depth. Nothing stops the risen Jesus as he continues to transform the lives of people around us, bringing them into his kingdom for his glory. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you are always in control, that you are seated on your throne. Father, thank you that you, God, thank you that you bring growth. Help us to see what's happening here in Acts as the gospel goes to to Europe in this part and have hearts that are captivated by what Jesus is doing. Help us to, to see this. Help us to long for this in our own patch. Help us to have a heart that longs for the people in our lives. May God give us grace. Help us respond to, to the Lord Jesus in the way that we should. Like the many people we hear in, this, in these stories who have lives of wholehearted faith, lives that are transformed. Father, yes, we pray that you would transform our lives in this way too. All for the glory of Jesus, your son who died and rose for us. Amen. Well, let's go now to another time of praise.
well we come now to a time of prayer and so please do pause the video in a moment and use this opportunity to be praying for things that are going on in the world around us things in our communities and things that are going on in your life and in your heart uh, please even use this as an opportunity to pray for the people that god has placed around you uh, asking that he would open their hearts that they would respond to the gospel Maybe even that you would have an opportunity to read the Bible with one of them. What great things to be praying for. Uh, we'll pray and then we'll have a final time of praise. to 
Let me encourage you with some of the final words of 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Here Paul writes, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is is not in vain. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.